As you're taking your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And as you turn in there, I'll just uh, say I, I was um, just in Romania last weekend. It's, uh, it's always encouraging to go there and see what's going on. And uh, it was an exciting for me to hear that, uh, that Pastor Brian almost had the privilege of preaching a message on singleness all by himself, fittingly. <laughs> um, Pastor Brian's actually on vacation uh, right now with his family, and uh, he will be preaching his message on singleness, uh, but that will be a few weeks away. So we are going to get back into talking about marriage from Ephesians chapter 5. Um, just before I do, let me just express to you uh, on behalf of the church in uh, Romania how thankful they are for, for you and for us as a church and for our support, for our love, for our prayers. Uh, I had a really sweet time. I'm always encouraged by what God is doing there, and, and the church that we support and that we're partnered with there in, in Yash, Romania, is growing and thriving, and God is blessing and working in tremendous ways. Uh, they've got a, a really just sweet spirit among them, a great love and unity for one another and for the Lord, and God is really growing their affection for each other, and, and in doing so, God is actually bringing many people um, in the doors of the church who are longing for that kind of community and trying to wrap their minds around the kind of love and, and unity that they're experiencing. And the only answer that they're able to present to the unbelievers who walk in the church is Jesus Christ. And God is saving people, and they're going to be uh, celebrating some more baptisms in the very near future. And, and they just send along their greetings and their love, and they're incredibly thankful uh, for all that we're doing to, to bless them and serve them. And, and I, I always come back feeling as much blessed as I know they do, maybe even more so. So I just want to express that to you. And uh, there'll be more probably to come on that. There's a little video they're putting together that I hope to show in the coming weeks to give you a sense of what God's doing there. I want to springboard back into the topic of marriage. A couple weeks ago, I preached a, a message in one sense outside of the book of Ephesians, but really to lay the groundwork for what we're going to look at this morning. And if you didn't have a chance to hear that, you really need to go back and listen to that to get a good understanding of how God defines marriage and explains at the very beginning of creation what marriage is actually for. We looked at that kind of in depth last week, and I want to jump in this week, um, building off that foundation. I don't want to rehash too much of what I talked about then. There will be a little bit of overlap but I want to begin by just mentioning that I think marriage is one of the most important yet controversial teachings in our culture today. Marriage is under attack. We have experienced, in one sense, the redefinition of marriage in our lifetime, a definition that has, I believe, stood for thousands of years in virtually every culture in the world, and yet our time, in our, in our day, in our culture, we have seen fit to become the arbiters and the determiners of what marriage should be. This passage here this morning in Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the clearest and most thorough in the New Testament when it comes to the topic of marriage. It's important to understand that today, probably more than any other day, Christians actually have a very distinct view of marriage. Marriage used to be something that we held in common with the culture around us. It would be a common connection point that we agreed upon, but in recent years, we're beginning to see that it is becoming more a, a position of conflict between us and the culture around us. Understanding that there are a variety, by the way, of different views about marriage, my hope, and maybe, by, by the way, held by some of you, maybe you've walked in here today, and maybe you're not even a follower of Christ, but you have some understandings of what marriage is according to you or according to our culture. My hope is that what you hear today is not what we believe marriage is, but what God says marriage is. But more than what God says marriage is, I hope you see what God's heart is behind marriage. I'm going to jump into this passage, but what I want you to see just from the beginning is that I'm going to start at the end of the passage, and I want to work backwards through it. And I think that's going to be helpful for us to get a first, a better sense of what marriage is for at the ultimate sense, and then building upon that foundation. So let me just read the passage for us. You can look at it with me in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 22. We're going to read through verse 33. You can follow along. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He said, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, 
Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. We really ended on the thought that I want to draw out in our first point a couple weeks ago by focusing on one of the main reasons that God has given us marriage, and that is to demonstrate to the world or to display to the world God's relationship with his people, the kind of love that God has for his people. And so the first point I want to just emphasize this morning is that we are called to pursue the Christ-exalting goal in our marriages At the very end of this section, in verses 31 through 33, Paul actually goes back to Genesis 2.24, that foundational verse that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. He anchors his understanding of marriage in this Genesis 2.24 passage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's important to see that he's rooting his theology of marriage not in first century Greco-Roman culture, but in God's design from creation. This is so instructive for us who may be inclined to reevaluate and redefine marriage according to what our culture says it should be. We always go back to what God says it is, to what God's design for it is, regardless of what our culture wants to try and press upon us. Paul is highlighting here the covenant union between a man and a woman. We saw that last week, that marriage is built upon this idea of covenant, that binding relationship that is permanent and lasting. That's what Ephesians 2.24 is pointing to, the believing and cleaving aspect of this union, the permanence of it. It's not a contract that we enter into with one another. A contract is simply some kind of a transactional relationship. Covenant is so much deeper than that. It is a binding relationship that is actually held together by God himself. This is why Jesus said, when he quoted this verse as well, we looked at it last week, he said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. It is God who has joined them in this covenant relationship, heightening for us the gravity and the seriousness of what has taken place. You know, a lot of times people enter into marriage and they build their marriage on this idea of love, right? People, we actually think we love one another when we've dated each other for six months. Isn't that crazy? Most people call that infatuation, You see, love is something that is built not in a moment. It's not simply an emotional response. It's something that's actually built over time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the pastor and martyr during the Second World War, famous theologian today, you may not know this, but before he was executed at the end of the army, he was actually in prison and he was engaged to be married. And we have letters that he wrote to his fiancée, and one of the things he writes in the letter to his fiancée, it's so fascinating, listen to what he says, he said, it is not your love that sustains the marriage but for now on, the marriage that sustains the love. And you see, what he was highlighting was the reality that the covenant nature of the relationship is the very thing that builds and builds and builds and grows and grows and grows the deep, permanent, intimate love that two people have the privilege of enjoying in this lifetime together. This, in other words, is the power of covenant to sustain and actually create a genuine, deep, lasting love. This genuine kind of covenant love is something that actually results in a greater oneness over time. We saw that in the passage last week as well, that the two shall become one flesh. 
And again, just to kind of recap what we saw last week, but this is talking about a comprehensive oneness. It is talking about, yes, a physical oneness, a sexual oneness in the relationship, but it is so much more than that. It is a spiritual oneness. It is an emotional oneness. It is a financial oneness. It is a holistic oneness that encapsulates every part of life. But this union is only made possible by two partners who are different enough to complement one another. Genesis 1 actually reminds us that we are created equal. God created man and woman, male and female. That was his design. It is not a cultural uh, framework that has been created, a societal construct. It is not. It is a divine relationship and structure that God has put in place from the beginning. And the word of God tells us that God created the male and female, both of them in his image, reminding us that both of them are equal in value, equal in dignity. There is no distinction in that sense. They both have the same worth in God's eyes. You know, the Bible has always regarded men and women as equal, always. But it has always regarded them as different. You see, why does God make us different? Well, I think in, in one sense, it is not for the sake of competing with one another, but for complementing each other. You see, gender differences are the very basis for both sexual and marital union. Last week, we saw four reasons for marriage, but this one, the one we ended on, is so significant, it is emphasized in the New Testament as being the ultimate point of marriage. Marriage here, Paul emphasizes in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage, in other words, is a picture of Christ's covenant-keeping love for his people. And in verse 32, Paul actually interprets Genesis 2.24 for us. He explains to us the very deep meaning of that verse from the very beginning of creation. It was intended to display God's great, covenant-keeping, permanent, lasting, intimate love with his people. He's telling us that our marriages are supposed to be an exhibit to this world of God's love. People should be able to look at your marriage and my marriage and say, that's how Christ loves the church. That's what grace looks like. That's how the gospel reconciles. Our marriages are to be a, a walking billboard shedding light upon the reality of God's great love for his people. Our marriages are supposed to display to this, this to this world that has been so wrecked and damaged by sin, that is so confused about the very meaning of love, that misunderstands the very love of God. Our marriages are a sign pointing to an even greater reality. That's what you need to understand from the very end of this section here. It's a sign pointing to the union of Christ and his bride, the church. I mean, can you just imagine for a minute how foolish it would be for me to open up my, my marriage album, all my wedding pictures, um, this year I celebrate 15 years of marriage by the grace of God to my, my beautiful wife. And I, I wonder if you can just imagine if I was just sitting on my couch every day and looking at the pictures from my wedding and just kind of, wow, what a great day. Look at these pictures. They're so amazing. And I spend all day, every day, just simply looking at the pictures of my wedding day and talking about the wedding and talking about the marriage ceremony. And meanwhile, my, my wife was sitting beside me, but I didn't look at her once. And my wife's saying, hey, I'm over here. Why don't you come talk to me? I'm like, oh, no, I'm too busy looking at her wedding pictures. Oh, but we have things to do. We have a life to live. Like, oh, no, I just, I just need to stay focused on the pictures right here. Right? This is so, so important for me to stay focused on these pictures. How foolish would it be for me to stay focused on the pictures instead of enjoying the reality that those pictures point me towards? The life I'm intended to live, the joy I'm intended to experience with my wife in our relationship together. And yet, I believe that many Christians fail to do this in their Christian life. You see, they're so busy looking at their own personal marriage, forgetting that there is a greater reality that it is pointing towards. They're so focused on the here and now of the marriage and forgetting that it points us towards something so much more meaningful and deep and intimate, God's relationship with us, his people. 
And when you reverse that, you begin to experience marriage here and now the way you were meant and intended to experience it. When you see why God has given it to you in the ultimate sense, you can actually begin to enjoy it and to display then to the world the very love that God has for his people. Our earthly marriages are pointing us beyond to an even greater marriage. It is the ultimate purpose and the ultimate motivation for marriage to understand this great reality that there is a greater marriage that we will one day celebrate. One day we will sit around the mar- and enjoy the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will experience in fullness what it means to be united with our covenant-keeping God, where we will enjoy the fullness of the relationship with Him that we were created to experience. That's why Paul closes this section, by the way, with verse 33. Do you notice what he does here? He gives this deep theology in verse 31 and 32. And then he says in verse 33, however, he's going to circle back here and summarize what he has actually placed before this in terms of our roles. You notice this? However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's anchoring our roles and responsibilities in this great majestic theology of the greater marriage to come. I want you to notice in verse 33, it's so interesting. You notice he doesn't say respect one another or love one another, although that is, of course, to be the case. But instead, he directs very specific commands to the specific genders. And in so doing, what he's doing, he's leaning into their nature of being made fundamentally different and having different roles in marriage for the sake of complementing one another and displaying in the greatest sense a picture of God's great love. So we need to go back. And with this as our foundation, we need to look at what it means to secondly fulfill your God-given role. And if you're not married, as I mentioned last week, I, I qualified all of this, so I don't, I don't want to do, do that as much again this week, but this is as much for you as it is for the married people here If you're not married, there's a good chance one day you will be. If you're not married and you're not planning on being married again, that's okay too because you need to understand this to be able to help and serve and pray for and lovingly correct and direct and instruct those of us in the congregation who are married. We need you. We need your help in this. It's so important to understand what it means to fulfill our God-given roles in the context of marriage. And I believe this is also way out of whack. As the culture has redefined marriage, it has also sought to redefine roles in marriage. And in fact, I think the one has come before the other. Redefining roles in marriage have led to a breakdown in an understanding of what marriage is to be. When we talk about roles in marriage, we need to be really careful. I want to acknowledge this. There's two different dangers that we can fall into and that we need to be aware of. You see, some of us want to dismiss gender roles altogether. We just want to throw them out the window. We want to kind of embrace the culture's mentality and say, you know, there's no difference between genders. And how dare you say that genders are different? Listen, that is not true. The Bible makes it clear there are distinctions, and that's okay. It's actually a precious and beautiful thing. But the other danger we need to be aware of, that some of us want to read our own cultural assumptions into understanding our roles. We've created an understanding of what those roles are to mean based on cultural expectations. And I just want to be very clear. You know, the Bible doesn't say who's supposed to do the dishes and who's supposed to do the finances. Amen? Doesn't say that. Amen, women, right? Yeah. (laughs) Gender roles are incredibly important. They're part of the original Edenic good creation that God created. And what we know from the beginning in Genesis 1 through 3 is that it was the curse, it was sin and the curse that actually damaged our relationships. It even began to damage our our fundamental understandings of our roles and our ability to function and flourish in our God given roles. See, now we understand that because of sin and because of the curse, man, man's natural bent is to domineer and to subjugate and to objectify. We know this and we've seen this and I'm very well aware of this when we talk about gender roles that that men have often abused the leadership and the strength that God has given them to oppress, to hurt, to bring pain. 
And the Bible in no way advocates that or stands beside that. The Bible would rebuke that. But I think perhaps even more so in our culture, rather than men abusing leadership by becoming oppressive, many have abdicated their leadership and become passive. And the answer to the gender wars and to the gender confusion that we experience today is not to find freedom from gender, but to find God-ordained purpose and order in gender. And so men, I want to begin with you and with myself this morning. And women, by the way, as you hear this, there's going to be much that does apply to you at an individual and a personal level as well. It's so important that we grasp this, men. Paul actually gives twice as much space to us as he does to the women. We're thick-headed, right? Oftentimes, we are inclined to think the part to the wives, by the way, is the most culturally abrasive, right? When we hear the words, wives submit to your husbands, we think, ooh, that's, that's abrasive. In our culture, it is abrasive. Do you know that in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, that that would not have been abrasive at all? In fact, the more abrasive command was the one that is given to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That right there was so abrasive in this first century culture. We know there's, there's lots of data that shows us that in the Greco-Roman world, they had family codes. They had expectations for husbands and wives and children. And do you realize that in all the family codes that have been uncovered through, through archaeology and, and extra-biblical literature, not once is there a family code that mentions anything about a husband loving his wife. It says plenty about a wife submitting to the husband. Men were required to provide a roof over her head and produce children, but love her? Give my life for her? Put her good above my own? This is a foreign concept. And yet, look at what verse 25 says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is a stunning command. A stunning command. And there is no higher calling for a Christian husband right here to be a true head, the Bible says, to be a true godly husband, is to love as Christ has loved. So you say, well, how do I do that? Paul is going to tell us in very explicit terms. Let me break it down with three buckets. The first is this, that we are called to love with a sacrificial love. A pastor and author, Ray Ortland, says these words. Just listen up carefully, men. Listen to this very carefully. He says, to be married to a selfish man who in effect creates one more child in the house for any wife, that is hard to bear. Man, listen to this. Sadly, some of the women in this room are saying amen in their hearts. But listen, a Christ-like husband makes her burden light. A Christ-like husband enjoys serving her as her lover and her provider and her defender, like Christ with his church. And Jesus is the model that we've been given, man, right here. You want to be a godly husband, you just look to Jesus and you see the way that he loves the church. And what we see more than anything is that the love that Christ has for his church is a sacrificial love. The cross tells us everything we need to know. It is the greatest example of self-giving love for another. And at the heart of the cross and at the heart of a husband's love for his wife is this thought. It is not you exist for me. It is I exist for you. Man, your priority should be to set your wife up to flourish. So much so that you are willing to sacrifice yourself for her well-being rather than require her to sacrifice herself for your well-being. Now, obviously, this works both ways. And wives, we know this, right? You know that there will be much sacrifice in any mutually loving relationship. It will be filled with selflessness and sacrificial love towards one another. It will never be demanding and longing for your way over their way. 
But men, it is imperative that you understand this is the primary call that is given to you. You lead the way in this. You don't wait for your wife to display this kind of love for you. You, as God, listen, we love because Christ, because God first loved us. You take the way in this. You lead with initiative in this. You become the sacrificial, loving spouse that God has called you to be, regardless of how your spouse may be responding. Let me just give you some really quick ways you need to be doing this, man. If you're thinking through your life right now, here's what you need to be sacrificing. You need to be willing to sacrifice to love your wife like Christ loved the church. You need to be willing to sacrifice your time. You have to. You have to be willing to sacrifice your time, which means this, that you're going to have to sacrifice some of your hobbies. You're going to have to sacrifice some of your energy and your efforts towards things that you would maybe rather even be doing in your fleshly desires. You need to be willing to sacrifice your preferences in discussions and decisions and in arguments. Laying them down. I've heard it put this way. That men, you need to be willing to wring yourself out for your wife. You need to wring yourself out for her by praying for her regularly and faithfully. By initiating spiritual conversations with her. By initiating prayer with her. By initiating family worship with her. By initiating church involvement. By initiating the first steps. Here's a big one, men. In reconciliation. There is a sacrificial love that must be present because this is how Christ loves his bride, the church. Secondly, the second bucket here is a sanctifying love. You'll notice what he goes on to say in verse 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And look at the goal in this, men, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Men, and, and I, I include myself in this, we are called by God to have a sanctifying influence on our wives, to have, have an influence on our lives that makes them more and more holy as time goes on. Could your wife look at you and your involvement in her life right now and say definitively to you this day, I am holier and more Christ-like because of your influence in my life today. God wants to sanctify your wife, and you are one of the primary tools he will use to do that. Men, did you hear that? We're simply a bunch of tools. <laughs> Again, half of the wives in here are saying amen. Look, all Christians have the responsibility to help each other grow. This is part of being in the body of Christ. This is part of living life in relationship with one another, unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ, filled with the spirit of God. We're called by God to help one another grow in love and holiness. We're called to affirm each other's gifts and to hold each other accountable and to grow out of our sins and into obedience. How much more so men should a husband and a wife do that? If you get this principle that in marriage you are to be best friends with the purpose of helping each other pursue Christ-likeness, it is a game changer. The purpose of your marriage isn't simply to have a happy life, okay? This is why a lot of people enter marriage. My life is going to be happier. It's about self-fulfillment, self-realization. It's about what this can do for me. If you embrace this idea that Marriage is given you primarily not for your happiness, but for your holiness. You will actually be a much happier person. But man, can I just challenge you in this? You say, well, I'm, I'm called to sanctify. I like to wash her with the water over the word. Can I just give to you what is a very cliche and commonly used expression? Men, you cannot teach what you do not know, and you cannot lead where you will not go. Let me say that again. It's really, really important you understand this. You cannot teach what you do not know, and you cannot lead where you will not go. And if you are going to take up this call to lead your wives and to be a sanctifying influence on your wife, do you realize how much this requires of you to be pursuing personal holiness? You need to be a vessel, as Paul says to Timothy, you need to be a vessel in the Father's house that is fit for honorable use, that is himself cleansed and sanctified and purified. Listen, if you are not working on personal holiness in your life, you have nothing to pour into your wife. 
And if you try to pour into your wife when you are lacking in personal holiness, not perfect, but listen, but lacking in, in, in essence, if you're really, really not a godly individual, if you try to tell your wife to be godly, the only thing she will see is hypocrisy. And that will not engender her to you. That will breed resentment towards you. Man, you must, you, you need to embrace this reality that what your wife needs most from you is your own personal holiness. What your kids, what your family needs from you is your own personal holiness. That's, that's priority number one. You've got to be in God's word. You've got to be on your face. You've got to be living a life in ongoing repentance and brokenness. You've got to be living a life of humility, calling upon God, right? God, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You've got to be hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You've got to hunger and thirst for more of the face of God, not just the hand of God. You've got to long to be in the presence of God, and you've got to do everything in your power to, listen, ferociously attack this. I don't know what you're giving your life to right now. I don't know what's taking up the vast majority of your time and your thoughts and your attention, but if you are not diligently, ferociously pursuing the things of the Lord, you're actually handcuffing yourself. You're handicapping yourself in terms of the influence you could be having in your wife and your kids and your church and the world. We gotta stop fooling around with the temporary fleeting pursuits of this world and start getting after the things that matter most. I was struck by this just again in Romania. Just God was just really working on my own heart through a variety of different ways, but just being reminded personally, Ian, Ian, you have to be about what the Lord blesses. You have to get after what the Lord blesses. That's what's going to matter most, both in this life and in the life to come. God help us, Amen. There are some of us who walk into marriage believing that it's going to fix all of our problems. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> oh, when I get married, all these problems are going to go away. Everything's going to be bliss. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just so silly, isn't it? It's just so crazy. Listen, marriage is simply one broken person plus one broken person, and that does not equal bliss. It equals two broken people. In reality, marriage is just two broken people coming together to become more like Jesus. The point of marriage isn't to find your missing half, it's to help each other become all that God intended. And here we're to take the word of God. This is the sanctifying agent that God has given us, the word of God with the spirit of God, the thing that scrubs us clean, the thing that's held up to our lives like a mirror and shows us the sin that needs to be dealt with, that reminds us of the grace that God pours out and lavishes upon us, that reminds us, I love, I love that song we just sang, that the mercy of God, the kindness of God leads us towards repentance. That God gives us the means of grace to grow us and transform us more and more into his likeness. Men, this does not mean you are allowed to take the word and simply lecture your wife. But it does mean you are called to speak the truth into her life. Lovingly and graciously coming to her and shepherding her and pointing her to the word. And by the way, wives, in the grace of God, you have the privilege of doing the same thing with your husband. And every godly husband longs for his wife to step into his life and to help him see his own blind spots and to see where he can grow Men, listen, if you want to be godly, start asking your wife more and more what needs to change in your life, what she's seeing in your life that's not lining up with the word of God, and to ask her to pray for you and to help you and to encourage you with the word and challenge you when you're stepping outside of God's bounds. But man, can I just tell you what's obvious in this? The idea that you're supposed to take the word of God to your wife, it actually requires that you talk to her. You communicate with her. And some of you have really struggled with that over the years and you've built really terrible habits in your marriage and you don't talk to each other, you talk at each other. You don't listen to each other. You don't really care about each other in communication. Can I just encourage you men that you need to lead the way in this? You need to begin by asking your wife about her spiritual struggles and joys. Asking her about what she's learning and how God is growing her and what God's convicting her of in her life. Digging into her heart and seeing what makes her tick and what makes her unique. God has given you a woman who is very unique and special to you and he requires you to live with your wife, as Peter says, in an understanding way, that you learn her, that you grow in your communication, in your relationship. 
It's only when we do this that we can actually begin to pour into one another with a sense of meaningfulness. Men, are your wives more like Christ because of you this morning or in spite of you? Don't be the thorn in the flesh that God is using to sanctify your wife in a negative way. The mission of marriage is the joint adventure of pursuing God together that spurs one another on to greater love and devotion to Christ. You know, Jesus died. I love this. When you think about how God, this works in, in parallel with God's, Christ's relationship with the church, you know, Jesus died not because we were lovely, but to make us lovely, didn't he? He died, Paul says, to make us holy. That means that your job as a spouse is to help your spouse love Jesus more than they love you. If you're married to an unbeliever here this morning, and some of you are, and I pray for God's special grace on your life because I know that is so challenging. Listen, show them Christ in how you love them. Show them Christ in how you treat them and how you speak to them and how you communicate to them and how you pray for them. Show them Christ by how you live a holy life pleasing to the Lord. If you're single in here, listen, you need to grow in your love for Jesus so that you can be the kind of spouse that God calls you to be. If you love Jesus more than you love your spouse, then and only then will you be able to truly put their needs ahead of your own. Whatever place you're in this morning, married or unmarried, struggling marriage, healthy marriage, the goal is the same. It's a call to love Jesus more and more. Finally, the, the love that God calls us to is a self-love. Some of you are like, my husband's got that one nailed. <laughs> but did you just notice how Paul frames this? It's so helpful, isn't it? In verse 28 through 30, he says, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. And then he actually goes on to, to explain this. He says, He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because remembers of his body. There's no part of our body that we don't value or treat with dignity and care. In the same way, the analogy here is that God loves every part of his body. Man, the call here is to love her like you love yourself. I remember hearing from a pastor and a preacher, Vody Bauckham, a statement that he makes about how men often go into marriage and they talk about their wives, maybe in conversations, like, yeah, she's mine, There's, that's my wife. And, and he says this so pointedly and so helpfully, he says, no, man, you need to learn to think of it like this. She's not mine, she's me. She's part of me. That one flesh relationship means that I, I don't just view her as a separate entity or something that I own or something that even has been given to me. She's actually a part of me. The way you care for yourself is natural, isn't it? You don't even have to think about it. It's so obvious. Every one of us, I hope, got up this morning and, and took care of our bodies. We, 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 I, I, we got a shower, I hope, right? I mean, we were, came clean and ready. We put on clothes. We fed ourselves. We cared for ourselves. We nourished our body. We cherished our body. In the same way, you must learn to instinctively care for your spouse, nourishing and cherishing her. It is not just bringing home a paycheck. Not just putting a roof over her head and food on the table. That is not what it means to be a godly husband. This here speaks to a wholehearted involvement in her life. You don't get to check out. You don't get to come home every day and simply kick your feet up because you've had a long day. I get it. There's time for rest. I get we need some space. That's not what I'm talking about. If you regularly just come home and check out of your relationship because you're tired from work, you are missing the point of your marriage. The words here are so instructive for our hearts. We're called to nourish our wives, men, which means this, to develop, to nurture, to lift them up. This word is filled with a sense of dignified purpose and care and attention. Again, Ray Ortland, he, he gives us this beautiful picture of what this means. And let me just read this to you. He says this, marriage to a Christ-like husband for a woman is the opposite of a dead-end life. 
A woman married to a nourishing man comes to the end of her days as an old lady, and as she is sitting on a porch somewhere in her rocking chair, looking back on her life, she is praising God and thinking, being married to my husband opened my whole life up. Yes, we suffered. Yes, we made mistakes. But in it all, my husband thought of me. He cared about how my life was going. What a great run we had living together for Christ. That is nourishing your wife. Cherishing is equally as beautiful, and it goes to an even more deeper emotional level. It means to comfort or to warm or to soften, listen to this, as by heat. Our English word heartwarming really captures the sense of this. You see, a woman married to a man who cherishes her feels warmth in her heart at being valued by her husband being held dear above all others and all else but God himself. He doesn't compare her with others or find fault with her or treat her as a loser he's stuck with. He delights in her and he prizes her and she feels it deep inside with a heart-warming glow. That is cherishing your wife. Men, your wife is not perfect, but she is your wife one flesh with you, beautifully bound to you as part of your very self. How could you neglect or despise her, even in her imperfections? Care for her all the more, nourishing and cherishing her toward her destined glory. Men, you are never more manly than when you love like Jesus. Throughout your cultural assumptions of what it means to be a man, you are never more manly than when you love like Jesus. And this is how Jesus loved his church. Wives, it's your turn. Verses 23 to 24, Paul addresses the role of wives. And the first thing he says is what generally feels very abrasive in our culture. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. By the way, to submit to your husband as to the Lord is really an expression of what Paul says in verse 33, that let the wife respect her husband. In other words, the greatest expression of your submission to your husband is your respect for him. It's hard to hear this word submission in our culture because women have been greatly oppressed by men who want to use this against them. We see submission as being oppressive rather than displaying order and harmony and in no way devaluing equality. And women, I just want you to notice what this says. It says that you are to submit to your own husband. It's not saying that all women need to be submissive to all men. That should be a hearty amen, right? right? But men, my wife does not need to submit to you. This here is speaking of her role in our relationship. So just butt out, okay? Don't don't try and boss my wife around. And I won't try and boss your wife around. And by the way, just that very idea of bossing somebody around is part of the problem. Because this is what our mind goes to when we think of submission. We think of somebody who's domineering and who just bosses somebody around. And somebody has to fall in line and, and, and be there like a mat to be walked all over. And there's no value and no dignity. And that's the opposite of what this term actually implies. You see, the word for submit in the Greek can be translated as respect or yield or defer. It means to come under another's authority. It does not mean do what you're told, be a doormat, be abused. This should not be used ever to silence women who are being mistreated or abused. Not ever. There's no place for abuse of any kind in marriage. And the fact that this verse is used to condone and encourage forms of abuse is disgusting. Submission instead, according to the scriptures, is a voluntary alignment with the leadership of a husband. Did you catch that? It's voluntary, not imposed. Notice that it does not say, husbands, uh, make sure your wives submit to you. You see, submission is her choice. It's a gift she gives to her husband 
of our own free will with no force or coercion. Now, it is a command, but like all forms of obedience to the Lord, there is a choice to be made. And like all forms of obedience to the Lord, God requires a a heart disposition that is meek and humble and joyful in our response to God. I think it's important to say, too, that respecting your husband as a command is is not conditional. Did you notice that? There's no ifs or buts here. Respect your husband if he does all these things well. Respect your husband when he's a good leader. Respect your husband only if he's as godly as he can possibly be. Well, we're all out of that one, right? You see, respecting your husband is not something you do because of what he does or does not do, but because of who he is and the role that God has given him. And by the way, it works both ways. Can you imagine, you know, if you're walking around saying, you know what, I'll respect my husband when he's respectable. Would you like your husband to walk around and say, I'll love my wife when she's lovable? How would it feel if God came to us and said, I'll love you when you're lovable? He doesn't do that. He loves us when we're not lovely, when we're unlovely, when we're rebellious, wicked sinners. He looks at us and he says, I'm going to love you into love for me. I'm going to love you into respect for me. Submission is a call to give women, listen, your feelings, your desires, and your trust over to another. This word is applied to all different kinds of scenarios in the Bible, but it is specifically applied to all believers in the relationship to Christ. Look at verse 24. Now as the church submits to Christ, you notice this submission is something we all do. So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Listen, submission, we should be no stranger to the concept of submission in the Christian life. This is the whole Christian life. It's a life of full and total submission and surrender, of deferring and preferring God's ways, not my ways. This does not mean, wives, that you don't have a voice, that you don't speak truth, that you don't participate in a partnership. You do. Paul says here that our submission, your submission, wives, is as to the Lord. This is so important. That's the picture we have here. It is the gospel. Listen, we submit our wills, our desires, our lives to Jesus as an act of total trust and devotion. It's an incredible display of love. And in the final analysis, wives, listen, your submission is not ultimately to your husbands, but to the Lord. It's actually, if you just go to the deepest level here, your submission to your husband is a reflection of your love for Christ even more than it is of your love for your husband. And you know what's so encouraging about this? Even if your husband doesn't see what you do to help serve him and care for him and support him, God sees And even if it's not precious in the sight of your husband, it is precious in the sight of the Lord. That's why it is to be a willing and joyful submission that is filled with comfort and care and encouragement. It is, it's a beautiful, precious thing. And men, to have a submissive wife is something you should greatly value and it should cause you to honor your wife even more so. And men, let me just encourage you, don't make it hard for your wife to submit to you. Wives, this is such a beautiful thing that you get to do. Let me tell you why. It's filled with potential for displaying the gospel before family and friends and neighbors and colleagues, some who might never ever come into a church to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, may see it most clearly in the way you lovingly submit to your husband. It's not simply behavior, but hard attitude that matters. And notice what he says. What do I have to submit to my husband to? Paul says it here, in everything. Now, let's qualify that very carefully. You never submit to your husband in areas of sin. If he requires you to sin in any way, your obligation is to submit to the Lord over and above the will of your husband. We need to understand what this idea means. It means that there is no part of your life that you keep to yourself only. 
And everything means full transparency, full disclosure, and opening up of the heart in every area of your life. There's no saying in your relationship, you have no place here. Keep out of this. Butt out of this area of my life, please, and thank you. This is mine, that's yours. It doesn't happen in marriage, not a godly marriage. This is a one flesh marriage. There is nothing, listen, there is nothing we keep back from Jesus, amen? There's nothing in marriage we keep back from one another. And in verse 23, he gives us the reason for this submission. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. You see, men are, in God's divine design, the head, the leaders. God will hold. You know what this means, men? This is, don't, I mean, don't sit there and pat yourself on the back for this. This means, that, men, listen, husbands, that God is going to hold you more responsible for your marriage than your wife. The order that God establishes reflects our gospel priorities here. Christ leads us in love by giving himself for us. We submit joyfully and trusting ourselves to him as an act of love. This order is for our good and is ultimately for his glory. And I just want to circle back really quickly to why this order is so important. As he gets back to the end where we began, and he quotes from Genesis 2.24, and he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. It is so vital that we circle back to this. Marriage is not ultimate. It is penultimate. It's not the ends. It's a means to the ends. And in Ephesians chapter 5, we can have the tendency to actually see our relationship between Christ and the church as the metaphor, but in reality, our human marriages are the metaphor, This is why Jesus said that in heaven, there will be no giving in marriage. Remember that? There's no marriage in heaven, so enjoy this one, okay? But there is marriage in heaven because this earthly marriage is pointing to an even greater marriage. What every human marriage points to is something that will one day fully be realized and fully be enjoyed The beauty of our marriages are pointing towards the beauty of the ultimate marriage between the groom, Christ, and his bride, the church. Every time a bride and groom stand there and take their vows, they are reenacting the biblical love story. Whether they realize it or not, the Son of God, listen, stepping down out of eternity, entering into time, taking on flesh, pursuing and winning his bride as his very heart and body with his sincerest, selfless, sacrificial love so that he can fit her and mold her and make her into one who can live with him for eternity. That dramatic but ultimate reality is the breathtaking reason why human marriage exists. It is incredibly profound. And Christian married couples have the privilege of knowing this mystery and making this mystery known in the world today by living out this dynamic interplay of an Ephesians 5 marriage. Let the magnitude of that privilege sit upon you this morning. Let the thought of the greater marriage supper of the Lamb to come and the intimacy we will enjoy with God forever because of his sacrificial love overwhelm your heart. This is why God calls us to regularly come back to the gospel. This is why God gives us the Lord's table to celebrate and to reflect upon and to look forward to what it awaits every one of us in Christ Jesus.